Hello. Thank you. Thank you very much. My lords, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this magnificent Gibson Hall with the Corinthian marble columns, very Greek. And what a fantastic gathering. Every sector of the industry is represented here tonight. And we owe it to you, our sponsors and supporters, for inviting so many distinguished guests. And we are also very honored to have the members of the judiciary here tonight. Well, in my view, the English judges have shown a great interest in matters concerning the industry. And this is very important indeed for the development of the law in tandem with commercial developments. And may I say that it is this factor and your, our judges, your unbiased focus on serving the interests of justice that attracts so many foreigners to this jurisdiction and also adds to the strengths of London as a major maritime and commercial center. Thank you all indeed for supporting this event so fully. Well, I can sit down now. I'm not, I'm not just sitting here to tell you why we came together this evening, obviously to enjoy ourselves with excellent food and wines, but that would not be enough for the Kadualada tradition. The CAD tradition is about tackling major issues concerning international maritime law and regulation. And this year, the Symposium DNA format is an innovation. And I'm happy that it's very successful. It's a good it was a good follow-up of our 11 previous events held since 1998. But without our sponsors, we would not be here tonight. And I mean it, we could not, we could not have made it. Uh, Holman, Fennick and Whelan are again our principal sponsors and we thank you for the lavish champagne reception. Spiros Carnesis of Elka Shipping and Chavliris Brothers, who, who were students of CAD, have always supported this event from the beginning. Our members, Informa Law is a lawyer supporter. Quadrant Chambers, Stone Chambers, 7KBW, Clydes, Hill Dickinson, Bremer Shipping, Linklaters, and Cheese Rights are also our sponsors this year. We are most grateful to all of you. Card will have indeed appreciated the recognition given to him. This event in his memory is, is, has become a legend. And we continue this le legend because he was a talented teacher. I would say the first in the UK. Thousands of students, some of us here tonight, 
enjoyed studying under, under him and his Socratic way of teaching and his Welsh jokes. But most of all, Professor Cadwallader is remembered for, his, for challenging unworkable law and for the development of maritime law. So following that tradition and being mindful of the centenary of the Titanic, our subject tackles an area which is not very far from the headlines and popular concern when an accident takes place at sea. With our title, From Titanic to Concordia, we aim to unravel the vulnerabilities of passenger ships. So the concept of Achilles' heel is, I think, appropriate to discuss. You may think, though, as Michael Gray did when he told me, Aleka, I can, I can think of many Achilles' heels of passenger ships. But here you go. Now, that may be so, and that's a very good observation. But I, I would like you to ponder what the most vulnerable point might be for our discussion later. As you know, since the Titanic, there have been considerable changes in regulation. The Concordia gives us another opportunity to discuss or consider safety aspects of modern cruise ships. You will hear it all from our speakers, Dr. Stephen Payne and Real Admiral John Lang, who will be introduced by, uh, by the chairman of this symposium, our Vice President, Law Clark. After the speeches, uh, enjoy the dinner. <laughs> so the, de the debate will take place after the dinner. But may I hold your attention for a bit more? We have a very special guest this evening, one of the pillars of the English judiciary, Lord Mastil. So we pay tribute to you, Michael, for your immense contribution to the development of English law. As I was curious to find out how many judgments you have written, I found in my research that you have written 616 judgments, maybe more, covering all areas of English law. They are included in this booklet, which you're going to receive later. These cases show that you traveled abroad extensively, sitting at the Privy Council, at all places of the Commonwealth, making the law. For us who practice maritime and, maritime and arbitration law, your decisions in these areas form the building blocks of the principles we follow. You developed your professional life, you, de you devoted your professional life to the law with passion. But I know that your interest has not just been in the law, it extends to mathematics and music. But primarily, we thank you tonight for the support you gave to the LSLC 
at the initial stages and thereafter. When I invited you to be the president, you saw immediately the vision I had about the center. Your faith in its future gave me encouragement to persevere with its development. Your words at the inauguration of the center held at the House of Lords in 1997 encapsulate the essence of the center. And I quote, there can surely be no other branch of commerce where the practical people know and need to know so much of the law and where professionals know and need to know so much of the practice. The skills and qualifications of those who occupy the broad spectrum between the judge and the master mariner merge almost imperceptibly. It is true indeed that cross-learning is the backbone of a successful industry. It is also the raison d'etre of our mission. I know that Michael is pleased to see that the center has grown to meet the needs of the maritime industry. So on behalf of all of us, our members and supporters, I would like to express our gratitude to Lord Mustill for his immense contribution to the law generally, to arbitration and to the LSLC. And at this point, I would like to ask Lord Phillips, who is particularly well qualified to speak about the person of Michael, to say a few words. Lord Phillips. Thank you. Uh, 50 years ago, I was in the course of doing a pupillage with Barry Sheen in Two Essex Court, which was a small set of Admiralty Chambers, albeit the sapling from the, which the mighty oak of Quadrant Chambers sprang. Barry suggested, understandably, that a grounding in Admiralty practice would be a rather narrow basis for a career at the bar, and that I ought to spend a term as a pupil in Four Essex Court, which was the leading set of commercial chambers next door but one to us, although members of number three might not agree. <laughs> this seemed a good idea, and it was then arranged for me to do a pupillage with a young member of those chambers called Michael Mustill. In those days, there was no difficulty in obtaining a pupillage. In theory, a pupil was expected to pay a fee to his pupil master, of, I think, a hundred guineas. And some members of the bar relied for their subsistence on fees from their pupils. <laughs> Michael Mustill was not one of these. Not only did he not expect me to pay a fee, he paid me for the work that I did for him while I was his pupil, showing a generosity which in those days was without precedence. But that was typical of Michael. This was not the only thing that surprised me. There was nothing ordinary about Michael. I found myself with a pupil master who looked a little like Napoleon and who did all his thinking standing up. He had papers on a tall desk at about chest height and he would stalk to and fro in his room, stopping occasionally to make a note. It so happened that I had joined him at a particularly unpropitious moment 
as he was immersed or immeshed in an interminable arbitration about rapeseed. But his advisory work spanned a wide field, and it was in respect of that work that he paid me far more than my efforts deserved. And after I returned to Essex Court to take up admiralty practice, he continued to provide me with deviling work, which helped me to keep the wolf from the door in those early days. Those who worked with Michael became his friends, and there were many of us. We were captivated by his mental energy, his humor, the breadth of his interests, cricket, Japanese go, opera. Michael it was who introduced me at his expense to the extravagant pleasures of Covent Garden, Indian history, France. In the long vacations, he would rent a house in the Ardèche, which was open house to many of us. Uh, some of us uh, are here, and they will be relieved to hear that I do not intend to give further and better particulars <laughs> of those somewhat bohemian summers. And then, of course, there is Yorkshire. I have a particularly happy memory of the first time that I went to his family home at Pateley Bridge to prepare a case as his junior for a Lloyd's underwriter, who in his field was almost as exceptional as Michael. He was called Posgate. I didn't always work with Michael. I was sometimes instructed against him. Once, successfully, in a case that turned on French law and something called the doctrine of non-cumul, where our expert was the venerated professor André Tunc, who totally outgunned the expert engaged for Michael's client, who was, I think, called Pontavich. Yes. Uh, but in that case, I had the advantage of being led by Robert Goff. The first time I appeared on my own after taking silk was also against Michael. He had the unenviable task of trying to persuade Lord Denning, who had just invented the Moravia injunction, that he had had no jurisdiction to do this. In that, Michael quite understandably failed. But he then went on to persuade Denning to find against me on the facts. Michael will be remembered as a judge for some remarkable judgments that he gave in the House of Lords, the most memorable being at dissents. For my money, he was the most brilliant law lord of his generation. But I suspect that the period of his judicial career that he remembers with the most pleasure is the time when he was a presiding judge on the Northeastern Circuit, when he gained the affection on all on, of all on that circuit and delivered a judgment on industrial deafness that is one of the milestones in the development of the law of personal injury. On one occasion when he was sitting at Sheffield, I arranged to sit there at the same time as a recorder. He was staying in grandeur in the judge's lodgings, and I as befitted a recorder in a nearby hotel. But each morning I would drive up to the lodgings to go jogging with him before breakfast. The butler at the lodgings regarded this with astonishment and in due course remarked to Michael's clerk, your judge is a poofter. Every morning a young man comes up here in shorts and they go off into the woods together. <laughs> well, I can assure you, uh, Michael was no poofter. On the contrary, he and my sister Caroline had the wisdom and good fortune to get married and they and I delight in their remarkable sons, Tom and Ollie. Alas, our jogging days are past, but it's a joy to me to have been invited to take part in this evening 
at which your president is being honored, and to express, on behalf of all of us, the great affection in which Michael is held. This is donated by our council member, George Chavlidis, on behalf of the center. Thank you very much, George. Thank you very much, everybody. It's uh, wonderful to be here. A terrific turnout is a tribute to the drawing power and acuity of those who constitute the London Shipping Law Center. A, uh, the head of state of a foreign friendly nation once said that it gave him a great warmth of feeling to stand before such a dense crowd. <laughs> well, I look round and see entirely what he meant. <laughs> and uh, this box, which was brought to me by Alica, I had assumed it would be a giant pork pie, uh, but instead there is this wonderful artifact. Uh, artifact. Uh, um, and uh, I'm deeply grateful to all those who have paid me the honor of asking me to come here and be your guest and on around. Thank you all very much and enjoy your evening. You will not have to listen to me again. Thank you. Thank you. Can you now please raise your glasses, if you have any, <laughs> to Lord Mustill.